How's everybody this morning? You doing good? Give me some lights in here so I can look at them in the eyes. Praise God. That was a wonderful testimony, and I love how she just talked about how it brings it back to the cross, because that's, that's the center of everything for us. That's where we experience healing and redemption, and it's what gives us hope whenever we go through such tragic things like she shared. And I know we've got so many people who go through those exact same things. And so this, this morning, I'm going to preach uh, a message about Holy Week. But see, Holy Week is a week where Jesus comes in and he's, he's entering into a final confrontation with the principalities and powers, a final showdown that will culminate in his victory over the powers of darkness on the cross. And so we're going to begin in Luke chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. We'll start at verse 28. And uh, I just want to share with you, if you guys are a guest of ours this morning, we want to thank you for being here with us. And we've got a couple of things. If, you, if you'd like to get connected with us, you can uh, meet somebody at the welcome desk after service. Or you can visit uh, cityofhopechurch.org, our website, and you can click connect, and you can pretty much sign up for anything by clicking that connect tab. Small groups, if you're interested in small groups, we'll actually have small groups right, or uh, I should say next steps, right after service. Been a long morning. I got up 5 a.m. this morning. Amen. <laughs> next step, step one, will be over in the conference room in the other building, so we'd love to have you with that as well. But let's, let's read here in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. It says, And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? This is what you should say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, sent... Sent the, went, went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And God, as we celebrate this holy week, God, where we start to begin to think about the process of you going to that cross on our behalf, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to bring such life to your word that we would see that sacrifice that you made for us in a whole new light. And I believe you today, God, that you'll bring salvation into people's lives. You'll bring freedom into people's hearts and minds. And that through your word, there would be transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is uh, Palm Sunday, and it's, it's, it's the day that we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem the week before Easter, seven days before Easter, five days before He's crucified. And He is coming, and you have to understand, this is a, a literal invasion from heaven. 
as the king of all creation coming into Jerusalem for a final showdown with the principalities and the powers of darkness that would culminate in his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. And at that particular time in Jerusalem, you had Pontius Pilate, who was the governor uh, in Rome over that area at the time in Jerusalem. And because it's Passover week, he's going into Jerusalem as well because here's what they know. They know that the Israelites were set free from Egyptian bondage during Passover, and they know that if there's ever going to be a revolt, if there's ever going to be any, 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 anybody going to make a stir, it's going to be during Passover. And so he is commanded to go in Jerusalem. But when, when he comes in, he comes in from Caesarea, from his palace, riding a, a white war horse. And when he comes in, he comes in with legions of, of Roman centurions. And basically what he's trying to say when he comes in is he's trying to say, listen, if any of y'all are thinking about doing anything, you better back down right now because we will end you. We will enforce our judgment upon you. And if need be, we will crucify you. And so he's coming in from the West with a certain message during that time. At the same time, Jesus Christ is actually riding in from the East from a different direction altogether to enter into this confrontation with the principalities and powers. The difference is he's not riding a war horse. He comes in riding a donkey to, to, to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah which was 400 years before before he came in, that the king of the Jews should come in lowly and humbly riding on a donkey's colt, and he shall teach peace to the nations. And so you see this, uh, everything's converging in this moment, literally what we would consider 33 AD or somewhere around that time. Everything is con converging in this moment, and Jesus is coming in to have a confrontation with the principalities and the powers. And as he's coming in, all of the people that are starting to sing, they, they go to Psalm 118, and they they start to sing this psalm and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they begin, begin to lay palms at his feet because many of them believe that he is the Messiah and he has come to deliver them from Roman rule. Now they may not understand the complete, uh, the fullness of what is actually going on in this time, but they're aware, they believe this man is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the anointed one. And the Pharisees see this and they say, Jesus, you need to rebuke your disciples because you know what this means they are claiming you are the Messiah and this is the first time that Jesus ever allowed them to do it publicly without saying no to it but they do it and they say you know he's claiming that and you know what that is that's blasphemy Jesus turns to him and he says not today boys if you understood what was going on and the time of your visitation you would be shouting praises to God too because I am the Holy One of Israel I am the Messiah I am the Lamb of God and they he said if you if they weren't gonna cry out these rocks right here would have to cry out because of what's going on. And I think sometimes the same way the Pharisees are is the same way that we are in the church. Sometimes we get so consumed by a religious spirit that we, we know scripture about Jesus, but we don't necessarily really know who Jesus is when he's in the room. Sometimes we get so consumed by a religious spirit that we can come and maybe hear a good word preached, but we don't have any praise in our heart for the salvation that he has brought to us. You're talking about an expectation of thousands and thousands of years of people waiting for their deliverance. And the problem sometimes with religious church people who just go through the motions is they don't see any need for deliverance. They don't see any need for a savior. They're just trying to hear the Bible and be good people. But see, when the spirit of God gets a hold of a person, there is praise in their heart. And what Jesus is saying is, my true living stones will cry out, and if they don't, all creation will bless me either way. Somebody's going to give God the glory for who He is and what He's going to do. Amen? Amen? 
And so he comes in, and they're giving praise, and they're giving shouts, and Jesus begins to speak to this, and, and he does that, and for the Pharisees, they didn't like that. And what you got to understand is he's, he's coming into a confrontation with the principalities and powers. Now, there's two ways that the Bible will lay this out. When you use that language of principalities and powers, you're talking about government leaders, people that are ruling over governments and over the world, but you're also talking about the demonic powers that are behind the scene influencing governmental leaders. Because I don't know if you recognize it or not, but in our world today, what you have are governmental leaders who give empty promise after empty promise with pseudo-solutions to realities that are deeply spiritual and oftentimes behind their empty rhetoric, whether you realize it or not, what you have are the principalities and powers of darkness behind them, moving them in a certain direction. Amen. And so what's happening is the powers of darkness are moving these world leaders, these government leaders, and not only that, get this, the religious leaders of the time. And so when the demonic begins to influence people that are in power and control, he literally likes to grab a hold of those who are in political power. He likes to grab a hold of those who have a lot of wealth so they can move things and make things happen. And he loves to also grab a hold of as many religious leaders as he can. So in this particular context, Satan grabs a hold of Herod Antipas, who is the king, the wealthy king over that particular area at that time, who runs commerce, who runs the economy. He also grabs a hold of Pontius Pilate, who is the governor on behalf of Rome over the area of Jerusalem. But most importantly, he grabs a hold of the mind and the heart of a man named Caiaphas. And he is the high priest at that time. And ultimately, he is the one who will call for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. And so he's moving all these world leaders. And so Jesus comes in on Monday after Palm Sunday. He's already got them shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then he comes in on Monday and he says, you know what, I'm going to take it up a notch. So he goes into the temple, makes a whip and a scourge and runs the money changers out and flips over the tables. And the scripture says, zeal for your house will consume me. He had zeal for the house of the Lord. And he says, my word says that this is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now get this, the same way he was passionate about the house of the Lord in the old covenant, which was the temple, he's passionate about the house of the Lord in the new covenant. And that is you. And sometimes when Jesus comes into his temple, he will flip over some tables. Sometimes when he comes into your heart, he's, he's interested in driving out some things that have grabbed a hold of your heart. That religious spirit that has kept you from receiving Jesus and giving him the praise and adoration that he deserves. It's one thing to have the external markers of a spiritual person or a godly person. Caiaphas had all that, but he rejected Jesus for who he truly was and failed to give him the glory and the adoration that he deserved because he was so bent on maintaining a corrupt religious system that ultimately he fell prey to Satan and became one of his pawns in the process of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, you need to understand this, that in the crucifixion of Jesus, all of the principalities and powers were overthrown. Now, I imagine Satan and even Caiaphas, the day they crucified him, I bet Caiaphas was thrilled. I bet Pontius Pilate wiped his brow and said, thank the Lord for that, even though he probably didn't thank the Lord. Amen. But he was glad that it happened. And Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, that if the rulers of this age had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
If Satan would have known the release of power that would have taken place at the cross, if Satan would have known that he was going to lose legal claim to hold you in bondage because of the cross of Christ, he would have said, boys, don't touch him. Let him live as long as he can possibly live because that crucifixion will spell defeat for what we are going through. It will end our kingdom of darkness. It will end our rule. It will end our reign. And they would have never touched him. And so what happens when... The Holy One enters into our system. What happens when Jesus Christ really enters into our system? Have you ever really considered that? I know as spiritual people who call ourselves Christian, we like to think that if Jesus showed up, we would welcome him. I'm going to say that some of us, honestly, believe it or not, we may not. He may confront something a little bit more deeply than we want to be confronted. And so he comes in, and he's working through all this, and you've got Caiaphas, the religious leader. You've got Pontius Pilate, the governor. And, and, and if you ask those men, do you have a right to rule? They'd say, absolutely. Not only do we have a right to rule, we need to rule because we are just and we are wise. But what happens when Jesus comes into our corrupt political, economic, and religious system is it exposes all those false powers for what they really are. See, we thought and they thought that Jesus was the one that was stripped and shamed on the cross and ultimately put to death. But what was stripped and shamed on the cross was ultimately the powers of darkness because it exposed all their empty rhetoric and lies as nothing but empty propaganda. Nothing this world system offers you, no solution the world tries to give you, whether economic, political, whether it's health care, whatever it is, it ultimately does not give you the answers to the problems we face as human beings. The only person who gives the answers to the problems we face as human beings is Jesus Christ the righteous one the holy one he's the Messiah that comes in and so when he goes to the cross he exposes all that they are because here's the thing if you are so wise and you are so just then why is the one who created the ends of the earth on that cross hanging bleeding dying that's what happens we walk in such darkness that God comes in the flesh and we choose to kill him because it confronts the own darkness of our heart and we want to hold on to our own system. Amen. And so Jesus comes in and some theologians will say, you know, when Jesus comes in, he comes to save us from God. But let me say this. Sometimes if you say that, what you get a picture of is an angry father who's just dying to kill somebody because he's so ticked off. But just at the last minute, Jesus steps in and takes the punishment. Now, he does take the punishment. He does take the penalty for our sin. But what you need to understand is that God is not ultimately the one crucifying Jesus. The scripture says that he orchestrated all of those events before the foundation of the world. Yes, but he is placing all the sin of the world on Jesus. He's handing him over and in the fullness of his wrath he's saying i'm handing you over to the completeness of human sin which at its apex is the very murder of god and he hands him over to that and all of the sins of the world come but you don't see god in caiaphas planning and plotting on how to murder jesus no you see satan behind that you don't see god in pontius pilate trying to enforce government rule no you see satan behind that you see God in His fullness and the full revelation of God on the cross of Calvary as He's bleeding and standing there and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
And what you don't see is him begging a father who wants to punish people, please forgive them, Lord, I know you're mad, but please forgive them. No, what you see is him fully representing the father's heart and the father saying, absolutely, son, we will forgive them. You know why? Because what we do and what our nature is is self-sacrificial love in which we absorb the sins of the world and return forgiveness and redemption in its place. See, the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God the Father was there with the Son taking His own punishment for the sins of the world upon Himself while we were still yet sinners so that we could experience salvation. God was not so angry that He sent His Son. He so loved the world that He sent His Son. Amen. And so he reveals the fullness of God on the cross and he strips the principalities and the powers and it's one of the most beautiful things that we could ever imagine. Jesus is coronated as king when he's hanging there bleeding and it flips everything up on its head because when we think of a king, we think of somebody who dominates, who's never hurt, who's never injured, who who can overcome anybody that comes against him. But Jesus reveals the Father's heart as self-sacrificial love, laying down his life for you and I that we could be set free. He flips what it means to be a leader on his head. He flips everything on its head. And there is freedom that is only found in the cross of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The, cro- the message of the cross itself, I'm going to tell you something. This morning, I-, I watched people in the first service, and as that message was preached at the end, there was God was moving in people, and God was doing something. Because the message of the cross in and of itself is the power of God. Under South. There is power released just in the message of the cross. And he says it's foolishness to the world because they can't understand it. You're talking about an almighty God that lets his creation beat and kill him? It makes no sense. But to those who are being saved, it's the very power of God. It's a demonstration of self-sacrificial love which changes the world from the inside out. Everything Jesus does at the cross, He does intentionally. It's, it's, It's with purpose. And He goes to the cross as He's going. One of the things you need to understand, He goes as high priest. He goes as the true high priest. And in the Old Covenant in the book of Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have to offer up a sevenfold sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat before he would go into the presence. As he was going into the presence of God, there'd be a sevenfold sprinkling of blood to atone from the, for the sins of the world. When Jesus comes as high priest, he sheds his blood at seven different locations. In the Garden of Gethsemane, first, he sweat great drops of blood. Secondly, they pulled his beard out and he bled from his face. And then they beat him in the face and struck him with rods, it says. And that was the third time that he bled. Fourthly, they scourged him with a cat of nine tails. Fifthly, they put a crown of thorns and placed it on his head. Sixthly, they put nails in his hands and in his feet. And then lastly, the seventh time that he bled was after he breathed his last and they pierced him in the side and out came blood and water. And there was a sevenfold sprinkling before he entered into the true mercy seat in heaven. And so he, re- he is, he's going through all of the old covenant laws and fulfilling them perfectly because he's becoming the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Before he does that, he's going through the week and from Tuesday to Thursday, you see mounting anger and disgust at Jesus Christ and they are plotting his murder Tuesday to Thursday. And by the time Thursday rolls around, Judas, his disciple and possible friend that he calls him, 
plans with some of the principalities and powers. He plans with even the corrupt religious leaders. Hey, there's money to be made. You boys are going to kill him anyway. I'll tell you where he's at. You give me a little money, we'll call it even. You know, what's it hurt to do that? And so he's sitting with Judas at the table, the Last Supper with his disciples on Thursday night. And on Thursday night, he looks at Judas and he says, what you do, go do quickly. And everything is coming together, and all of the plans are working together. And that night, they come to him, that Thursday night, and when they come to him, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's taking the sins of the world upon him. And he cries out, Father, take this cup from me if you'll be willing. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because in that moment, he's feeling on a human level, on a flesh level, the, the pain and the stress and the anguish from all the sins of every human being throughout time coming upon him, and he sweat great drops of blood. And he was about to be handed over in the fullness of God's wrath for the hands of the Father to hand him over to sinful, wicked men and ultimately to the demonic itself. And when he comes in, they come in, Judas gives him a kiss, and they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And I love this because once he gets up from prayer, the only thing that he says in Scripture is he says, I am. And when he says, I am in the book of John, it says they fall down on their face under the power of the glory of who Christ is in that moment. See, it wasn't them coming to arrest Jesus. It was Jesus choosing to lay down his life for you and I. They only thought they had power over the Son of God. They thought they had power. They thought they had control. But they were playing into the very hand of God Himself, orchestrating events that would lead to your salvation so that you could be set free. It was all mapped out from before the foundation of the world. And this, let me tell you something, folks. This message should go off in your heart. If you get comfortable with this message and somehow you miss it and there's not praise and there's not glory and you can't sing because you can't see the salvation that Jesus has brought you, you need to come to a place of brokenness. Because in the church, there's a pharisaical religious spirit that blinds us to this same reality that if we were there when Jesus came in the triumphal in, in, entry, we would have not laid no palms in front of him. We would have said, I don't like what this dude's doing. These people are praising too much. They're worshiping too much. They're acting a little bit crazy. You ever got a hold of that spirit? Has it ever got a hold of you? I'm telling you, folks, it gets in the church and it keeps us away from what God wants to do in our life. And we just hear the message of the cross and we treat it as, as, as something common. No, this is a holy thing that we need to hear over and over again. They arrest Jesus in the garden. They take him into a place where he's going to go through six trials all night long. He goes from Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin to Pilate to Herod and then back to Pilate between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. Man, don't sleep all night. He's beat half to death by the time it's all said and done. And, he, and the priests are constantly looking for something to pin him down on. Now, Caiaphas is one of the most interesting guys in the world because you know that Scripture says that the high priest Caiaphas, he actually prophesies that somebody would have to die on behalf of the Jewish nation. But yet he wants Jesus dead. Isn't that an interesting thing? Here's what's happening. God is allowing him to speak something, and here's what he believed. He believed that in order to keep the peace and maintain his religious power, somebody would have to die as a scapegoat in order to let the Romans think, we've got this all under control. There's not going to be an uprising. So he prophesies, in order for Rome to not just destroy Jerusalem and for us to maintain some measure of religious and political power, somebody's going to have to die. But what he doesn't realize is that by the Spirit, he's also prophesying that this one is actually going to die on behalf of not only the entire nation, but the entire world. 
And so he comes to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is getting people to perjure him. And he's saying, won't you come and lie about this guy, bear false witness, so that we can crucify him and get rid of him and get him out of here. And in Matthew 26, 63, it says that Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now here's one thing that Jesus is absolutely guilty of. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the one, the Christ is the anointed one. The Christ is the one upon whom the Spirit dwells because He comes to preach the good news to the poor. He comes to heal the brokenhearted. He comes to set the captives free and preach recovery of sight to the blind. He comes to open the prison doors to those that are bound. He comes to enter into death itself and raise people from the dead who have been swallowed up by it just to demonstrate that I'm the one who made all of this. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He's the only one that can bring true freedom into your life. And I love what Jesus says in verse 64. It said, he said to him, It is as you said... Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes. He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. And then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? So they're mocking him. Here's what's so interesting about this particular passage, though. Caiaphas comes in, and when he hears Jesus say, Yeah, I am the Christ. I'm the Son of the living God. And not very long from now, one day, you will see me coming in the clouds in the power of great glory. Right? I, imagine Caiaphas seeing that one day. He hears that. He says, Blasphemy. And he tears his clothes. He is the high priest. It's Passover. Tomorrow he has to offer a sacrifice for the people at 9 a.m. And he's got to offer another one at 3 p.m. But in the scripture, in Leviticus 21, according to the law, he's not allowed to tear his clothes. And by tearing his clothes, it disqualifies him as high priest, able to go and offer that sacrifice the following morning. So that has been nullified and voided because he's done by command what he cannot do, which only confirms that he's an illegitimate legitimate high priest so according to lineage get this some scholars will say that according to lineage actually john the baptist by lineage and character and even by god's design should have been the high priest but the corrupt religious system don't want a guy like john the baptist running the religious show because the man don't wear suits he's wearing camel skin he's eating locusts and he's calling out everybody's sin you don't want that dude running the religious aspect of the community he's going to call out the governor and say listen dude you're committing adultery he's going to say things like that so they're like no 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 let's install Caiaphas a man that we can control a man that we can tell what to do now get this if he truly is the true high priest John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching and Jesus shows up what does he do he does what high priests do he he sees the sacrificial lamb he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He identifies a pure sacrificial lamb. He comes into the waters with him, and he says, Jesus, you're going to have to baptize me. Jesus says, no, no, no. In order to fulfill all righteousness, 
you baptize me. And in baptizing Jesus, priests would pass down their priesthood to the next line. And that was the end of the Old Testament priesthood under Levi. And it transferred into a new covenant priesthood because Jesus was not a Levite. He was of the tribe of Judah, but he was a priest in the order of Melchizedek and not Levi because it is a priesthood that lasts forever. And he, when he went to the cross as high priest, he didn't just go as high priest, but he also went as sacrifice. And guess what? He was crucified as that Passover lamb at 9 a.m. And at 3 p.m. when they would offer the last one, he breathed his last and he said it is finished. And there was a great earthquake. And in the temple where they offered the sacrifice, the veil was torn from top to bottom as if to say the old is obsolete. There's now a new covenant with a new high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this sacrifice is a sacrifice to end all forever. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Jesus comes in as the one true high priest. And so they're preparing him and they're sending him off to the greatest execution in human history. You remember Caiaphas brings, brings Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate said, man, I see no fault in this man. He actually sees Jesus for who he is. But Caiaphas says, no, 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 no. We have no king but Caesar. Denying everything that he believes is a true Jew, Jewish person. And then he says, we need to crucify this man. And he gets the crowd to cry out. And Pilate says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to go scourge him. We're going to beat him. But that's what, we're going to leave it at that. This is too much. But he ends up going to the cross. And 800 years before the crucifixion happened, Isaiah saw it in a vision. And he prophesied exactly what he would go through for us. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. The Hebrew word there, coli, is sicknesses, and he's carried our sorrows. The word there is pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Firstly, Jesus was scourged for our healing. They take him out, and they take him to a location on Friday morning, and the first step was the scourging, and the Roman centurions, the soldiers, would take what was called a cat of nine tails, and it was a whip that had embedded in it pieces of bone, fragments of bone, of glass, of shards, so that when it struck the back of a person or the legs of a person, it would, it would grab a hold of their flesh, and when they would pull away, it would tear the flesh from their body. Now, they did not have to choose those because there were other weapons. That would be for one of the, the worst criminals, but by this time, there had been so much incitement and such a following of people that were gathering around what was taking place, they decided to take it the extra mile, and they gave him 39 stripes, and they basically tore the flesh from his back and his legs as they hit him, 13 on the side, 13 down the center, and 13 on the left. Most likely, they could have even went and turned him over to the other side. But 39 stripes was essentially the highest they would go because they believed 40 to be the death penalty. And so they were going to whip him, they were going to beat him, but at that particular time, they were going to let him live. Now, it says that by his stripes we are healed. He was scourged for our healing. And what we believe in the Christian life, biblically, we believe that the same way Jesus paid for our sins, he paid for our healing. And us human beings, we are broken and we are under the power and the weight and the law of sin and death apart from Christ. And because of that, we need a healing spirit, soul, and body. 
Our spirit needs to be revived and brought to new life. Our soul, our mind, our emotions, our mental capacity needs a healing. And ultimately, our physical bodies need a healing. And that's why as Christians, we actually pray in authority. Not begging or asking, but we pray in authority for healing to take place. Spirit, soul, and body in human beings. We believe that Jesus Christ is still healer, and we believe it on the authority of God's Word. Now, some people say, well, yeah, Clay, I know we believe that, but most people don't get healed and this and that. Let me tell you something. The more we believe, I think the more people we will see get healed. But not everybody will be healed in this life. And just like the testimony that we, we heard, just because we don't get healed in this life does not mean that healing is not happening. It doesn't mean that it's not going to happen because one day Jesus will return, and everyone who is in Him will be completely healed, and everybody will be raised once again from the dead to new life. And so we have that hope. But in the here and now, we live in the already not yet where we believe and we pray for healing and we pray and fast if we have to because we're believing that heaven is breaking through. And every time we do see somebody healed in their mind, in their emotions, or even in their physical body of an ailment, of an ailment we believe that it's a foretaste of the fact that one day Jesus is going to come and heal it all. So until that time comes, we say, you know what? We've got scripture that says specifically 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And so Jesus took that scourging for our healing, and that's what we believe as Christians. After that scourging, they took Jesus back to a place called the Praetorium, and that's where the guards hung out. And at this point, they bring him back and they blindfolded him and they begin to mock him. And, and, and here's the thing. They get to a point, they're, they're mocking him. They're saying, prophesy to us, Christ. If you're the king of the Jews and you're the Christ, prophesy to us. Who is it that hits you? Because they blindfolded him. They couldn't get a reaction out of this man. I, I, I said earlier, you know, look, if, I, if I'm God in the flesh and I have all power and them dudes keep hitting me and mocking me and spitting on me, I'm going to fan off their hind end and vaporize them in a moment. Just like that. Because Jesus has more power than Thanos. He don't even need a glove. No infinity stones. He is the infinity stone, my friends. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He can reverse every single thing that comes to him. He could have done that, but his power is not demonstrated in brute force like the power of the world. His power is demonstrated in self-sacrificial love, and his greatest power in that moment is the fact that he did not open his mouth. Scripture says, Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And because they could not provoke him to anger, what they do is they say, all right, if you're a king, they weave a crown of thorns together with two-inch thorns on it, and they press it down onto his head with sticks, and the thorns go into his mind, into his temple, into his head right there, and he begins to bleed from his head and see Jesus wore the crown of thorns ultimately I want to believe because of your, for our peace he took it around his mind around his head the thorns scripturally represent the curse if you remember Adam and Eve when they fell in the garden basically God says look these vegetables these fruits these produce they're not going to produce like they used to 
You're going to have some problems. And by the, the sweat of your brow, by labor and toil, you're going to produce. And they're going to bear for you thorns and thistles. Because some things, just like we heard in the testimony, some things are not a result because God wants to do it or because God causes evil or because God just wants to do, hurt some people or bring sickness on some people. Now, mo many of the things that we see are a result of the curse. The thorn is a result of the curse. And Jesus is taking the curse. Scripture says that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And therefore, when he hung on the tree, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, if you read the curse of the law in Deuteronomy 28, one of the things that it says specifically, listen to this. The curse lists specifically these things. Confusion, an anxious heart, anguish of soul, your life hanging in doubt before you. You under fear day and night, having no assurance of life and constantly fearing of death. That's a part of the curse. Under the blessing, we find mental peace. And so Jesus wears the crown of thorns so that you could experience peace. And that's why in Isaiah 53, 5, it says the chastisement for our peace was upon him. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you. And this peace is not like this world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. Now, let me say something. I understand that most of us, at some point or another, we deal with anxiety. We deal, deal with fear. We deal with fear of death. But can you understand with me this morning that Jesus paid the penalty so that you would not have to live in confusion and mental anguish? Even the Scripture says that you can let your requests be made known unto God and the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a peace in Jesus which has been purchased and paid for. I get we have hard times and we deal with anxiety and we deal with fear, but there is a peace that Jesus has paid for to you to have in your mind. And so we need to understand that and we need to constantly look back to the cross and what Jesus has paid for because somehow or another Satan gets us over into, into an area where we feel like we need to take care of things on our own. Or we feel like something else is going to be the answer. And I get that sometimes, look, therapy can be a good thing. All of these things can be a helpful thing, but ultimately they should point us to the one who sets us free from these things. Amen. Amen. And so Jesus wore the crown of thorns for our peace, but thirdly, Jesus took the nails for our sin. They made Jesus carry that cross once they had beaten him and put the crown of thorns on his head. They made him carry his cross up Calvary's hill, up Golgotha's hill, and when he gets to the top, they put nails in his hands, most likely here, because it would lock in between those two bones, and then in his feet. And the idea was that if you nailed the hands and the feet like that, they wouldn't really have the strength to be able to lift themselves up so that death would happen a little bit more quickly. But crucifixion is interesting because it was designed so that you couldn't lift yourself up, and after a while you'd get so worn down that you would just hang to the point that you would actually, how you would die is you would suffocate, you would asphyxiate, and you would drown in your own fluid. Now for Jesus... He had been beaten so horrifically that he actually bled out. And he died before the others died because he had been beaten so horrifically that he died by the time 3 p.m. rolled around. Nevertheless, he was nailed 
for your sins and your iniquities, your hands representing every act that you ever committed, your feet representing every path that you ever walked. He took nails in the hands and in the feet. And what happened was in the old covenant, whenever somebody had a debt and that debt was paid, they would take the bill of debt and they would nail it to the door to say, this has been paid in full. You no longer owe anything. And what you must understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when you receive salvation, you ain't paying for your sins no more. Either there are two people that can pay for your sins. If you don't receive Jesus, you're going to have to pay for them on judgment day and it won't be pretty. But if you will receive Jesus, you need to understand that he on the cross paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future, so that you could be completely acquitted of every guilty thing you'd ever done. On the cross, Jesus received the fullness of what I deserved so that right now in my life, I can receive the fullness of what He deserved and stand in the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the blessing and the favor of a righteous God. And when I go to heaven one day, Jesus is, God is not going to say, well, you know, Clay, we need to deal with that sin issue. No, I may say, what about those sins I committed? I mean, am I going to make it or am I not going to make it? And He's going to say, son, I don't know what sins you're you're talking about because everyone that you ever committed back then when you was on earth it was nailed to the cross and we wiped it away and we cast it as far as the east is from the west never to be remembered again but the problem is as Christians we still deal with the shame and guilt and a demonic lying accuser who constantly keeps us up under the weight of what we've done or maybe even what we're currently struggling with sometimes amen some people say, man, I, I just don't know if the Lord's going to bless me. Maybe He's going to punish me in the future because of what I've done in the past. God don't punish His children. He corrects them. Amen. God doesn't punish His children. He corrects them. He doesn't hurt them because of things that they've done. Now, sometimes, listen, children, they suffer, they suffer the consequences of their own actions, right? If Naomi touches a hot stove, ain't much I can do for it. I didn't punish her, but she touched the hot stove. So I'm going to correct and say, don't do that, baby. As you see, you get burnt when that ain't it. Sometimes God does that with us. But in Hebrews 9, 14, we carry shame and guilt. And I love what it says. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses your conscience from dead works, from guilt, from shame. Why? So that you can serve the living God. Some of you are in here and you're like, I just don't know if I can serve God. I don't know if I can do things on His behalf. If you only knew the sin that I've been involved in, guess what? His blood is powerful enough to scrub you and make you so clean that you ain't got to take a bath for the rest of your life spiritually. Amen. He's able to cleanse you in His blood. Fourthly, Jesus took the spear for our broken heart. Maybe this is my favorite one. He hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. There was a great darkness that came up about, about noon that day and covered the entire earth because there was a solar eclipse, a darkness that even people from different places of that time shared in that moment. And at 3 p.m. he breathed his last and he said, it is finished. And see, what's interesting is at that particular time, because a great storm was coming and an earthquake hit when he breathed his last, they came and they broke the bones of the men on either side of him. But there was a prophecy in Psalms that none of his bones would be broken. So the centurion starts to break his bones and looks at him and says, no, I think he's dead. And so one of the other centurions probably says, well, make sure, hands him a spear, and he puts the spear into his side right here, and it says, out came blood and water, and he was dead. 
now we live in modernity, and I hear people preach it all the time. We're like, see, we'll see scientifically if we get CSI investigators and we look at the cause of death, what he actually died of was a broken heart. You know, and they go through all this. And and I like that. I like that because why? Because I do believe that Jesus had a broken heart so that he could heal you of yours. I believe there's so many people that have dealt with and struggled with things from their past. They could have lost something. They could have dealt with something like Megan was talking about in, in there, the, having a miscarriage or just grieving the loss of a loved one or having a divorce or just struggling with, with the shame of something that took place in their past or maybe they've been abused and they got all these wounds in their heart and Jesus is saying, I suffered. that I'm not far from you in your suffering and I'm not the one that caused this. I'm not the one bringing this on the world. This is the, this is the consequence of sin and Satan and human rebellion. This isn't me doing this. Matter of fact, let me show you this isn't me doing this. I show up on the scene and I heal people and I set people free and I raise people from the dead to demonstrate to you that death and destruction and loss are not my design. Life and life more abundantly is my design. So I've come to reverse things. I've come to change things, but I want you to know that in your suffering, you need to look to the cross because I'm right there with you in it. I chose to enter into your suffering. I chose to be there with you. We don't know all the answers. We won't have them till he returns. But while we're in our suffering here, we can know we've got a Savior who chose to suffer with us. And he endured a broken heart so that he could heal yours. Whatever it may be. But see, I'm, I'm a little bit more mystical. And I believe that when John wrote that in Scripture, he wasn't trying to give us, he wasn't trying to ascertain the cause of death. So a bunch of modern preachers who want science and facts and data can tell you what happened to him medically. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is he's, he wants us to see something very specifically. And one of the first things that we see of the pierced one on the cross, blood and water flowing, is we see God dead upon a tree from whose sides flows a fountain of living water because that's what he said, out of your heart would flow rivers of living water. Zechariah said it like this when he prophesied in chapter 12, verse 10. He said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And I believe here's what's happening. He says, look, they're going to look upon the one whom they pierce, and they're going to mourn. Why? We mourn when we look upon the one that we pierce because we were complicit in the death of Christ. It was your sin, it was my sin that put him there. And we mourn over our sin. And when we see the cross, we see the horror of our sin. We see the weight of our sin, that it's not something that Jesus could just walk up and say, I ah, don't worry about it, and just went on. No, he went and he took the fullness of all human sin on himself. And it's horrific. And it causes us to mourn at our condition. But in the same token, we rejoice because in his piercing and in his suffering flows a fountain that when we plunge ourselves underneath it, it cleanses all of our guilty stains. And we rejoice at that. Now, 
There were other old dudes. I like reading what old dudes have to say. Origin of Alexandria. When he looked at this, he lived in the year 184 to 253. And here's what he said. He said, when I looked at the, at the pierced one hanging on the cross from whose side flows water and blood, he said, what I saw was I saw the rock that was in the wilderness that when the children of Israel were thirsty and they had nothing to drink, God said, Moses, smite that rock. And when he smote it, water came out and they, their thirst was quenched. And he's saying that, that was the rock that was smitten for us. And when he died on the cross, the water came out and it quenched our everlasting thirst. There was a guy named Ephraim the Syrian from 306 to 373. He said, when I looked at the pierced one on the cross and blood and water flowing, what I saw was the last Adam. The way that the first Adam had no helpmate for him, but God put him into a deep sleep and took out one of his ribs from his side and fashioned a woman so that he could have a, a helper suitable for him. In the same way, in death, Jesus went into a deep sleep and God pierced his side and took out a rib and formed the bride of Christ, you and I, so that we could have life. Amen. Augustine of Hippo, 354 to 430, he said, when I looked at the pierced one, blood and water flowing out of his side, I saw Noah's ark because on the side of the ark, one door was placed. And when judgment was coming on the world, everybody could rush into that one door and find salvation and find protection and find life. And he says, in the heart of Christ, you have protection. You have salvation. You have life. Ambrose of Milan, Augustine's mentor, mentor, he wrote a song and he said, At the Lamb's high feast we sing, praise to our victorious King who has washed us in the tide flowing from His pierced side. And when I look, and I want you to look, I want you to look and see, I want you to imagine Jesus on that cross being pierced for you, blood and water flowing. Water is the sacrament of baptism from which you enter into covenant with Jesus, you're cleansed from your past life. The blood of Jesus which forgives us of all sin. The communion, the Lord's table that flows from his side. And when we look into his side, we get a glimpse into the heart of God. That this God is not an angry God, a vindictive God that wants to bring judgment upon the whole world. No, he loves the world so much that he sends his son so that the world will not be condemned, but that the world will be saved. And we see the heart of God on the cross. Self-sacrificial love. And at this moment in history, all the forces of the universe are converging. The demonic, the human, the human being led by the demonic to crucify this man and us playing right into the hands of God so that it would equal our salvation. My last point is that Jesus suffered the death of the cross to defeat the powers of darkness. And I want to read this last set of scriptures because it's a very powerful few verses. It's Colossians 2, 14 and 15. It says he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all. Our sins, our stained soul, he deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. Satan and the powers of darkness thought they had done something in killing Jesus. But what they didn't realize is he had no legal right to kill him because he was sinless. If you're sinless, you don't deserve death. So get this. When Satan mocked him, 
when Satan ridiculed him, when Satan shamed him, when Satan beat him and had people spit upon him and ultimately crucified him and put him to death. By doing that, he forfeited his right to ever do those same things to you legally. When you come into Christ, you are now a conqueror over death. You are now a conqueror over sin. And Satan has no legal right, no legal claim to your life. And when you repent of sin and say, Jesus, I'm yours. You're Lord of my life. I renounce darkness. I renounce Satan. Satan no longer has any power over you. And you stand in authority to say, I'm no longer. The enemy thought he had me, but Jesus said, you are mine. And I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've been set free from the power of sin. And I have access to the heavenly realm so that I can experience the grace and the mercy and the healing power of God in my life right now, spirit, soul, and body. Jesus went to the cross for us, folks. And we've got to hear this over and over and over again because sometimes we forget. Amen. Now we're going to receive communion together because I can't think of a better thing to do after hearing this message of the cross. We're going into Easter next Sunday and we're thinking about this holy week where he, he moves in and on Thursday he eats with his disciples. He washes their feet. He loves on them. And he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he does that because he's telling them, I'm this new Passover lamb. I'm the one that now when the death angel passes over, he can't touch you because the blood of the lamb is applied to your life. And so here's what we're going to do. We have two stations here, and there's two plates on each one. And from the back to the front here in a minute after we pray, you'll line up and form two lines and just come down and take it, and you'll take a piece of bread, you dip it in the cup, you receive it, and then you walk back around to your seats. Does that sound clear enough? And on the same way on this side, there'll be two here. You take the bread, you dip the cup, and you take it as you, as you go. But I want you to stand to your feet because I want to pray before we do this. They're going to prepare the elements and begin to come to the music. But can we just take a moment right here? Because when Jesus ate with his disciples, he basically brought them to a point of examination to see where they're at. And here's what I want to do before we go forward. And I didn't do this earlier. And we actually ended up, a, a, a young lady ended up giving her life to Jesus. But can we just give some, somebody an opportunity in this room to say, I want to receive this body and this blood as a believer today. Because... If you don't believe in Jesus, this body and this blood's not for you, right? If you're not a follower of Christ, this isn't for you. But if you believe, if you've turned from sin and you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, this table's open to you because it's this blood that cleanses you. So let's bow our heads just for a moment. And if there's somebody in this house this morning and you say, that's me, I need this salvation and I'm not giving my life to Jesus. But this morning, I want to pray. I want to confess my sin. I want to receive salvation. I want to know that I have eternal life and I want to make Jesus my Lord. Would you raise your hand real quick? Just say, that's me. I want to do that this morning. Anybody at all. Just me and you and the Lord. Anybody. Praise the Lord. I'm going to assume that everybody's good. And in that case, as we receive the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take a moment right here. Examine your heart. Bring your sins to the Lord and let's confess our sin to you. Just take a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your body broken, your blood shed for us, and we bless these elements. But God, right now we're asking, Holy Spirit, would you expose anything in us? See if there is any wicked way in us. And Lord, we come and we confess all of our sin to you right now. 
and we ask you for forgiveness. And we believe that when we ask for forgiveness, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we receive that cleansing now. And Lord, for each person right here, I pray that as they come to receive your body and blood, that they come in faith. That it's not just a dead ritual, but God, you are present in this moment. Jesus, you are present in this moment to heal broken hearts. Lord, to to heal minds and give peace of mind. Lord, you're present here to heal sick bodies and to bring the fullness of redemption. So Holy Spirit, as we receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, would you do your work in enforcing the victory to bring freedom from the power of sin, to set people free, to heal bodies and heal hearts and heal minds right now in Jesus' name.